What does it mean to be a Christian? What kind of words might we use to describe a Christian? Well, for this morning, we're going to consider it this way. Born of God and believing in Christ. I wonder if that describes you. Born of God and believing in Christ. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, these opening verses of John's Gospel have presented us with the Lord Jesus Christ described as the Word who is eternal because He is God. The Word who is a distinct person within the Trinity. He is the one who is the Son and He is fully God. The Lord Jesus Christ is presented to us as the eternal God, the only begotten Son of the Father. And he is the one who is the source of all spiritual life and light. But our problem is that we are spiritually dead and in darkness. But Jesus is the true light come into the world, the light of the world, that we might be brought out of our darkness and placed into his marvellous light. And the Bible goes further, actually, than simply talking about us as being in darkness and then being brought into light. The Bible says, you are darkness in your sins. But if you come to Christ, you now are light. This Lord Jesus is, in the words of some of our familiar Christmas carols, the child in the manger, infant of Mary, outcast and stranger, Lord of all. He is Christ, by highest heaven adored. Why? Because he is Christ, the everlasting Lord. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. God of God, light of light. Very God, begotten, not created. He came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. Perhaps in our familiarity with many of these lines, when we sing them year by year, we are in danger of losing a proper sense of the magnitude of these truths that we're singing. 
well, perhaps this Christmas, all of us will recover again the wonder of Messiah's birth. And this morning, as we continue to study what John tells us about the Lord Jesus in these opening verses, as he opens up his gospel record in a very unique way compared to the other three gospels, we've come this morning to verses 10 to 13. And we can break it down very simply under three headings. And we'll consider, first of all, verses 10 and 11. With this heading, this sinful world wants nothing to do with Jesus. This sinful world wants nothing to do with him. Have you ever seen a presidential motorcade? Well, you may not have seen one in person, but you've probably seen, seen them on the television or seen pictures of them in the newspapers. How can you possibly miss a presidential motorcade when it passes through town, especially if it happens to be the President of the United States. Have you seen his motorcades? Roads for miles around apparently seem to be closed, and this procession of cars and vans of every size and shape, which seems to be almost endless, stretching all the the way to the horizon as the President approaches. Here in the UK, we tend to be rather more discreet and toned down. Nevertheless, if you were in London and a member of the royal family or a member of uh, holding high office in government are being driven around the streets of London, they are unmissable as they receive their police escort with the, uh, the motorcycle outriders seeing them safely along their, their destination. When someone important is in town or on the move, you really cannot fail to see them. And yet... The living God, who is constantly in his world, goes unseen, unrecognised. It's a remarkable thought. Even before his incarnation, even before Jesus came into the world, the Bible tells us plainly that we have enough to know that he is. And to know that we ought to recognise and acknowledge God and give him his rightful place and afford him his rightful praise as we humble ourselves before him. Those of you who've been with us on Sunday evenings, how does Paul explain it in his letter to the Roman church? Well, just a few of the lines that he mentions. What may be known of God is manifest in them, For God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. How is God manifest? How does he show himself? How are we without excuse? Well, Paul points to two particular things, the world around us, which is the work of God's hands, and our own conscience within us, which convinces us of the being of God and of our own guilt and shame. This created world, it is just too wonderful, too beautiful, too majestic, too intricate, too finely tuned and balanced, 
simply to be the, the random result of millions of chance happenings over billions of years. Come on, even in its fallen state, this world screams, I was designed and made by God. It's an expression of him in that sense. Not that we're pantheists, of course, believing that everything around us is God. That's not what we believe. But we do believe that the wonder and the glory and the beauty of it all is an expression and a reflection of the wonder and the beauty and the glory of its creator. The wisdom and the power which lies behind it can only be the wisdom and power of this creator God, who is the word, John tells us. And there's our conscience. This common inbuilt knowledge of what is right and what is wrong that we all possess. Now, over these last few weeks, we've, we've had these appalling cases recently about young children killed in their own homes by those who are meant to love and care for them. And almost to a man and a woman, we are rightly and similarly outraged and deeply disturbed by such things. Well, we thank God that the kind of people who commit such degrees of wickedness are very much in the minority, thanks to God's common grace amongst us. If God withdrew his common grace, we'd all be like that. But you, we don't hear society debating, trying to decide whether such things are right or, or wrong. We all know within us. We're not making a mountain, a mountain out of a molehill when we, when we think about crimes such as these. In this and in so many other things, we know that God is. We know that there is a standard of truth which is right. We know what righteousness is. We know unrighteousness and wickedness when we see it. And we have that common sense of it together. Because there is that conscience within us. It's, it's it's what's left of us, even in our sins, of that image of God in which we were first made. We know. We have a soul which knows that God is. We are without excuse. And what's the proof? What's the proof? Well, when those kinds of atrocities occur, listen to and look at all the messages which flood in. You are in our thoughts and prayers. They've never prayed. They've no idea to whom they should pray. But they do know they should pray. They do know. And, and oh, it's slipped out. It's slipped out. Our thoughts and prayers 
our thoughts, look at all, read all the cards, our thoughts and prayers, our thoughts and prayers, our thoughts and prayers. Listen to a politician who cares nothing about God, my thoughts and prayers, my thoughts and prayers, my thoughts and prayers. They're without excuse. They know. They know. But what does the Bible say? They suppress the truth for the lie. Have they the faintest idea how to pray? Have they the faintest idea really to whom they're praying? Well, in a sense, no. But in a sense, yes. Because they know that God is. They know that they need someone bigger than they are. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Slips out. But this truth is suppressed. And, and God is shut out in so many other areas of their lives and tomorrow morning everyone will just get on with things without a thought for God. They don't want to know him. They don't want to hear his rebuke over their sin. They don't want to be reminded of his laws that they break every moment of every day. They don't want his lordship over them they are driven by the pride of self. And Paul continues in his, his letter to, Ro to the Roman church, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They profess to be wise, but they're fools. They've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There are non-righteous, Paul would go on to say. There are none who seek after God. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. Because it didn't want to. And it still doesn't want to today. Such is the nature of our sinful hearts. And then God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and came in the first place to the nation to whom all of the promises of his coming were given. We've been thinking about that this morning. All of those things in the Old Testament, all pointing to Christ. He came first of all to the nation of Israel. What blessing and privilege they were in. All through their scriptures, the Old Testament in our Bibles, Promised salvation by means of a promised Messiah or Saviour. And so many details about this one who would come. We've had some of them put before us this morning. And the awful plight of our sins before a holy God is made clear in the Old Testament. The dreadful yet just penalty that must be laid against us because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. God's not messing around with this. And yet God is a God of grace. He's a God who is ready to forgive sin. He's a God who's ready to forgive sinners. And in their worship, as the priests offered up sacrifices, it was made clear that through the shedding of blood there is forgiveness of sins. And Christ, the Messiah, enters the world. And in him, well, they, they see and they hear 
such compassion, such grace, such love, such mercy, such power, such authority, such declaration of truth. They see in his life the fulfillment of prophecies. But when he's 33 years old, most of them are crying out to the Roman authorities to crucify him. That's the whole point of that parable Jesus told in Luke 20, which we don't have time to go into now, but you see in the Old Testament, there are occasions when Israel is pictured as a vineyard that God has planted and he's hedged it around. And it's been left to those appointed to watch over them spiritually. But Israel just keeps falling into sin and God sends his prophets, but they reject them. Some of them get killed. And eventually he sends his own son. He'll be killed too. Jesus is speaking of his own death. He even came to his own and his own would not receive him. It wasn't just John who said those words. Jesus spoke about it in that parable. For a brief time, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the, a week before he died, the day that we now call Palm Sunday, well, on that day, it actually was. Uh, well, it was a, a 2,000-year-ago Palestinian version of a motorcade, I guess, as he rode into Jerusalem. What crowds! What excitement! What jubilation! But he wasn't the kind of king they were expecting. He wasn't the kind of king they were looking for. He wasn't the kind of king they thought they needed. And it didn't take much and it didn't take long for all of the anticipation to give way to aggression and they soon turned against him. This sinful world, in its sinfulness, wants nothing to do with Jesus. He's not a God who gives me the things I want him to give me. He's not a God who permits me to live the way I want to live. So no thank you. What an, an awful indictment this is against our sinful pride and shame that we should reject Christ who is Emmanuel, God with us and we push him away. And so hordes of people will flock to places like London to watch the great events of state which take place in all of their pomp and ceremony. But the King of Kings? No thank you. No thank you. There was a time when I didn't want him either. There was a time when none of you did. But one day I did realize I needed him. For many of you, the day came. You, re you realized you needed him. And everything changed. Everything changed.
But how is it for you this morning? Well, if this has never happened before, my prayer for you is that today will be the day when everything changes. Maybe this Christmas time will be the Christmas for you when everything changes. We've been praying for that for everyone who's here today. That this will change. Because these verses, they first of all present us with this bleak picture that the world just doesn't want Christ. But in verse 12, the verse 12 speaks about when rejection of Christ becomes belief in Christ and everything changes. Everything changes in verse 12. But as many as received him, there will be those who receive Christ. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So let's focus on two of the words in particular in verse 12. Received and believe. To receive, to accept, to take hold of, to take possession of. Next weekend, uh, hopefully, you'll be thinking, you'll be offered a gift or two. When someone offers a gift... Well, you have two choices, don't you? You can either reject it and say, no, thank you. Or you can take hold of it. Take possession of it. It becomes yours then. You can either deny the giver that which they wish to give you. Or you can receive from the giver. And take from them that which is offered. What happens when someone becomes a Christian? What happens when someone changes their lifelong position of rejecting the Christian gospel? They receive him. They receive Christ. They take hold of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As many as received him. Something drastic and radical changes them. We'll come to that shortly. But the effect of that change, the result of that change, is that they receive Jesus Christ. And they do so in a certain way and for a particular reason. Well, they understand now their need of salvation. They understand that in their sins they are condemned before a holy God and by that God. They understand that in their sins they are facing everlasting wrath. The truth that the wages of sin is death has hit them right between the eyes. The reality of Jesus dying upon the cross in the place of sinners, taking upon himself the punishment that sinners deserve as our substitute and as our sacrifice the reality suddenly dawns. He did that for me. This atoning 
redeeming, reconciling work of Christ, the cleansing that I need, the forgiveness that I need for all of my sins, to be made right with God. I need that which Christ has done for sinners. And so I turn from my sins, from my sinfulness. That's what the Bible calls repentance, to turn away from those things. And I receive him, Christ, that I might receive everything he has done for a sinner like me. To receive him is to receive that salvation he has secured for me on the cross and in his rising again. And the only way that salvation may be received is by receiving him. Because this isn't a mere philosophical idea or concept. It's about a change in relationship. And it means dealing with this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receiving him in all that he has done. You now believe in his name. And to believe in his name is to believe in who he is and what he has done. You shall call his name Jesus. He is Emmanuel. Why? Because his names speak of who he is and what he has done. He is God with us, who has saved us from our sins. And I receive him, that Jesus, that Jesus who came in the, into the world, that Jesus who died for sinners, that Jesus who rose again from the dead, that Jesus who is the everlasting word of God, I receive and believe in him. I believe in him. I trust him. I trust who he is. And I trust what he has done. Have you received him? Do you believe in his name? There is salvation nowhere else. Why would you not receive him? Why would you not take hold of this gift which God offers to all who will receive it? Why would you not believe in this Lord Jesus? And you'll see that sandwiched in this verse, in between receiving and believing in verse 12, is a most remarkable truth and privilege. Because as I said, at its heart, becoming a Christian and being a Christian is about a totally transformed relationship with God. He gives you the right to become his child. Because in the sin in which you are born, you are a child of his wrath and his anger and his condemnation. But you may become his child. He confers that right upon you. He adopts you into his family. Because as we're about to see, this whole thing from beginning to end is God's doing. He brings about a drastic and radical change within you. And he takes you from being totally opposed to him to becoming a member of his family. 
It's just incredible. God conveys you to the privilege of adoption. Such is the extent of his grace and his mercy. Now, in the news recently, we've had so many tragic stories. We've had, we've had stories of the lives of young people taken by other young people. We've got teenagers, 13, 14, 15 years of age, going through the courts, accused of murder, taking the lives of their own friends, the people they, they go to school with. Now imagine a few years down the line, the story emerges of bereaved parents of a child killed and they've adopted into their own family the child who took their child's life. Such an outcome is unthinkable for most people. You can maybe, maybe suppose that in the passage of time, those bereaved parents might find it somewhere in their heart to have a degree of forgiveness towards the one who took the life of their child. But to accept that murderous youngster as their own, whilst their own child lies in the grave, that, that kind of thing is unthinkable for us. It's not unthinkable for God. Such is his love. That's exactly what God has done for us. If you've received Christ as Saviour and Lord, it's precisely what he's done for you. You'd have been in that crowd in Jerusalem that day, shouting, crucify. Your voice would have joined that crowd. And yet, here he is, adopting you into his family. The extent of God's forgiving grace and mercy and compassion is without compare. Again, we saw that with Paul in Romans, didn't we? God did not spare his own son. This is off the scale, love and mercy and grace. This is why even at Christmas, we have to get people away from the baby in the manger to the Saviour on the cross. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? If they leave a carol service like ours this afternoon, and for them, Jesus is still only a baby in a manger, what's the point? What good's that going to do them? Jesus came to go to the cross for sinners. But what changes? What changes in us? What gets us from us being part of that world that did not want to know him? What gets us from there 
to taking hold of him. What gets us from being in that world that wanted nothing to do with Christ to finding ourselves being an adopted child? What happens? What's needed? How can this be? Verse 13. It's about belief, which is the result of new birth. This is belief, which is the result of new birth. Born of God. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So, listen, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin, enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. God does a miraculous work of grace in the soul of the sinner. God imparts to human hearts. God does the work within you. He brings about the required change within you. You can't do this to yourself. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. This is not something you can decide to do. This is not a change you can produce within yourself. You don't have the capacity. You're dead in your sins. You need life, but you're dead. You need to be reborn and renewed, regenerated. Jesus will say, won't he? John chapter 3, you need to be born again. And it's the work of God's Spirit within us. It's not something you're born into. It's not about belonging to a particular earthly family. The Israelites thought, well, I'm a Jew by birth, so that's good enough for me. No. It's not something you can bring about and decide for yourself through your own power of reasoning. You'll never get there. It's the work of God. This is the work of God, says John in chapter 6, that you believe. Your believing on Christ is the work of God within you. He causes you to be born anew. The sinner is made new, spiritually regenerated, brought out of spiritual deadness into the light and life of Christ. Verses 4 and 5. God does it. And as we were reminded from our studies in the Catechism last week, and as we'll see again this week if you're with us on Wednesday, it's this renewing work of God by His Spirit which brings us to receive and believe. This former blindness of our hearts and minds is lifted, and now we see. We see Christ for who He is. We see our great need of Him. We believe in Him. We receive Him. In humility, we confess our sins. We confess our helplessness. We deny 
any power that we think we may have of our own and seeing only in Christ that which we need, that we might lay hold of him by the means of faith. And even our faith is God's gift to us. And so the question continues to be put to all. The message of the gospel continues to go out to all. Have you received him? Will you receive him? Do you believe in his name? Because to everyone who receives him, to receive Christ by faith, to follow him as Savior and Lord, to them he gives the right to be children of God. Born again, a new and heavenly birth, adopted into the family of the King of Kings, to be cared for with infinite love by a heavenly Father, providing you with everything that is for your good and in eternity to give you a crown that will never fade away. Through faith in Christ, God, in his grace, gives us full title to all of these things. Are you a child of God? Have you been born again? Have you the marks in your life which accompany new birth? A sense of sin, trusting in Christ, seeking after righteousness and godliness. You will never be content until you've found the answer to all of these things. And the answer is found in only one place. And the answer is found in a person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer is found when you take your eyes from the baby in the manger and trace his life of suffering and sinlessness to the Savior on the cross for you. Born of God, forgiven, reconciled forever.